loss was a massive thing because the blood just kept going through me. So I did die twice, but I don't know if the first time was at Burnie Hospital or not, but blood loss was a severe thing. It just kept going through me, so they had to get blood from Mercy Hospital and I drained that. So yeah, I drained Bernie Latrobe and I got more from Launceston. Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big company? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. Drink driving is the number one contributing factor in approximately 30% of fatal crashes in Australia. And unfortunately, a huge percentage of drink driving accidents occur in rural areas. All listeners well know that driving under the influence of alcohol is illegal, but it still happens. In this podcast, I'm interviewing a young Tasmanian woman, Alicia, who made a big mistake when she was 15 years old and she almost lost her life as a consequence. Hello, Alicia. Hi. <laughs> Where am I talking to you at the moment? Whereabouts in Tasmania are you located? Devonport, which is in the northwest. It's a beautiful part of Tasmania. Yes, definitely. Northwest is actually great. <laughs> Did you grow up there? Yes. I <laughs> always lived in the northwest. I grew up in a place called Milabina, which no one really knows where it is, but if you know where Boat Harbour Beach is, it's close to there, but out rural, like farmland. So you you grew up on a property? Yes, just surrounded by forestry and farmland, yeah, paddocks. Do you have um, brothers and sisters? Yes, I have two older sisters and one younger brother, so a big family. And you went to school locally, I presume? Was there a primary school and high school nearby? Yeah, there was Boat Harbour which was beautiful, and then I attended Wynyard High until the accident happened. So when the accident happened, how old were you? I was 15, so I was in my final year of high school, grade 10, and, yes, yeah, so I was 15. And so you had been drinking with your friends, is that right? Yes. So it was a Friday night, I'm pretty sure it was Friday, on June 4th, 2010, so... No, I think it was a sad day. I don't know. I can't remember <laughs> that much. But, yeah, and so we were out in Malabina and I was with my sister and a close friend at that time. And, yeah, I was just drinking pulse cans. I, I don't think they're around anymore, but I was probably drunk off two of them, no doubt. <laughs> so you were just hanging out, teenagers, weekend night. What led you to end up in a car? Yeah, well, I just remember like we were just dancing and I was repeating Getting Over You by David Goyard because it was my jam back then <laughs> and I was just dancing and drinking and 
I actually got my period <laughs> that night and where we were, we were close to where my parents lived and my sister had nothing there and I don't know, like we were just invincible and we are like, oh, we'll just go get stuff. So, yeah, we ended up driving to where my parents lived and I like tiptoed past my dad because he was asleep in the armchair because he fell asleep watching football. So <laughs> I just crept past him and just, yeah, you know, done what I needed to do and then I got a meatloaf CD from the lounge room and went back to the car. Whose car were you driving? Or was it you driving or was somebody else driving? No, I was driving. It was my sister's car because she was 18 at the time. So was this like a little tacit? Had you driven before this? Had no. you driven your sister's car before? No, I've never actually drove a car before that night. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> all right. So you've been out drinking, you're having a bit of fun with your sister and friend. Um, your sister, why wasn't your sister driving? I mean, that's that's the obvious question, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so from there, getting the meatloaf CD, we were just like, I don't know, adventure awaits. I don't really know. And we got to the end of La Puna Road and to go onto Myala Road and my sister got out to do something and I jumped in the driver's seat and I was just like harping to drive and then she eventually just was like whatever and then I would say 4Ks. Um, it was midnight and investigators did say it was like misty and slippery because it was midnight too. So, yeah, and then so 4Ks pretty much from that turn off I managed to drive on the opposite side of the road and we've had a seatbelt on and my friend didn't have a seatbelt on either but my sister did and she was beside me um so we ended up on the opposite side of the road on this corner and we hit a thick farm post so there's normally like a square box thick post with one going diagonal in it in like a long rural fencing places so I managed to hit that and I had no seatbelt on as I classified but on impact my top half of my body like smashed through the driver's side window because it like flipped but as it flipped the glass penetrated into my lower back pelvis so I was like jammed on this glass but it was flipping so like as it flipped I got stuck and crushed and ripped but then it got like I got thrown like on the second flip so yeah I just yeah lots of questions Alicia so how fast were you going do you know we actually do not know the the articles and stuff said high speed but um I think the investigators come back I just I don't have the reports but I apparently I was really only going like 61 but the article said high speed, so I wouldn't actually know what speed I was going. Because you don't, you don't remember any of it, I presume. Just before and bits weighing there on the road. But, yeah, so we, yeah, not, none of us actually really know the speed. So you hit this sign post? It was a sign post? Is that what it was? Yeah, just hit? a farm post, yeah. A farm post. So you hit the farm post and the car flipped 
And as it flipped, the the driver's side window smashed and you got impaled on that glass and the car's still flipping. Yeah. And then it's coming around and you've got no seatbelt on and you're just like a a rag doll being thrown around. And then how did the car land? The car landed on its roof or on its wheels. I'm not sure, actually, because where I was laying... Uh, it wasn't in view until I was lifted. So you were thrown from the car and was everybody else thrown from the car as well? Did anybody end up still in the car? My sister was kept in the car because she had a seatbelt on but my friend got thrown 50 metres from the back seat and she landed in a paddock so she just missed the fence and a tree and she ended up in the paddock beside the road so she actually wasn't found for a very long time like I'm not sure how long but it took a search to find her so I think it took maybe an hour to know that she was there. Wow so it's midnight and you're on this room this rural road in Tasmania. Do we know who found you or who came across the accident? So this is like, it just, the whole night just gets so much bizarre. So there was this house on a hill near the corner and like they were up and they were listening to music. So as they got their CD out to put a new CD in, they heard the impact. So within that minute of changing a CD, they heard an impact and they went running down their driveway and they seen my sister and so they called the ambulance and then my sister was like kind of screaming, crying me, like my name, and they ran to me and I was like under a baby blanket. So I, at that point I don't know if like I was just what state I was in. Gotcha. So they, they came up and, and you were on the ground. Did you know that you were in real trouble at that point? What do you remember um, from that particular point of being on the road? I remember heaps of blood. Obviously, I really didn't know what trauma was because I didn't even know what mental health was at 15. Like before that, I was just this, I don't know, teenager that didn't wasn't educated about any mental health or situations like that. So, yeah, I was in this trauma state and I just like my sister was just screaming and crying my name and then I just, that I don't know, this sick feeling but you're scared but, Oh, yeah, it's just I, I don't know how to explain the feeling, but just is this really happening? Like just playing on my mind, like is this really happening? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. Did you have any pain? Were you in pain at the time? I, I actually couldn't feel anything. Right. So they obviously called the, the ambulance right away. and Yes. And another lucky thing that night was the paramedic actually lived on the Poignia Road. So apparently if she was not on call like I wouldn't actually made it at all so she was possibly like 10 minutes away instead of being from like in Burnie where that's like maybe 40 45 minutes away from Milabina yeah were you still you were still conscious through this period is there any point there where with people arriving and and so forth and and trying to to look after you, do you remember what occurred next or does it all become a little bit hazy at that stage? I was just in this massive traumatic state but I did meet the paramedic at a wake actually years later and she kind of filled in the blank spot. So she 
arrived and she seen my sister and she had blood all over her head because there was a mower blade in the boot. So on impact, this mower blade come from the boot and got my sister in the head and like slit her head open. So like oh my gosh. she she ran to my sister and just like swore because like her head like there was so much blood and then she ran over to me and then just swore even louder. So yeah, she would like it must have just been traumatic to see that situation and then obviously like she got the scissors and was cutting my clothes off and she said the scissors went straight through my body because like I was crushed and ripped like my lower half so these scissors just went straight through my body. So essentially you'd been severed. Your whole lower body had been severed with the glass of the window of the car? Yeah, and I just I don't think I understood at that time actually what happened or what was going on because she did say to me I was trying to stand up and she had to like put all her force down to like keep me down on the road because I was trying to stand up but like I'd imagine my lower half wasn't really connecting great with my upper half because my whole pelvis was smashed like it was crushed. Wow so I presume there was a lot of blood loss and I presume their first action would be to try to stabilise you and to just make sure that you were going to even make it to the hospital. Definitely. So there was just the paramedic there and the two people from the hill. The friend at the time was still in the paddock. Um, My sister was there bleeding, so I imagine that she would have attended to my sister's bleeding. And then she got me in the paramedic and just got me to hospital. Right. So do you, what happened once they got you to the hospital? On the way to the hospital, in the meantime, so my neighbour, he owned the top pub in Wynyard years ago and he was coming home from work after midnight and so on the Pointy Road he's seen police, everything there and it was, the road was shut off and there was a car basically matted um that looked like my sister's car because we're all close out there like we know each other and our cars and stuff so he was like oh my god so he went all the way the back way and he went to my sister's house the car wasn't there and he went to my dad's and the car wasn't there so at that time he ran in got my parents was like like we gotta go um my family gathered together stuff you know just and now we're heading on to Bernie so at that point I was getting everything done like just seeing what my injuries were blood loss was a massive thing because the blood just kept going through me so I did die twice but I don't know if the first time was at Bernie Hospital or not but blood loss was a severe thing it just kept going through me so they had to (laughs) they had to get blood get blood from Mercy Hospital and I drained that um, and then they had to taxi blood up from Launceston Hospital because something happened to the helicopter. So, yeah, I drained Bernie Latrobe and I got more from Launceston and that helped. So I was just going through all these scans and they were basically seeing what the damage was and what needed to be done. So that was happening and then as soon as my parents arrived to hospital my sister was coming out of the ambulance and so mum was screaming to her and running to her and then yeah they went inside to get told what was actually happening yes as i mentioned earlier this podcast has been made possible with the support of isuzu ute australia Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, 
and Isuzu have provided D-Max utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes minus the wings and the Isuzu D-Max and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. So what did they discover once they did the scans and actually got to see what was happening? What was the extent of your injuries? Basically, my pelvis was crushed, my stomach, like um, my ovaries, my like bladder, bowels, all that was crushed. Right. Does that be, was it crushed from the car landing on top or was it? Yeah. So what do they do with that? What, what do you, if you're a doctor and you're confronted with a 15-year-old girl who's had her entire pelvis, you know, crushed and, mm. and cut open, what do you, what do you do? Yeah, basically, um, I also did get um, a brain bleed too because on impact I hit my head pretty hard. So that was another injury and I cracked um, my skull on my cheek. Yeah, so (laughs) I really, yeah, I was in ICU for a really long time and it got to a point where one of the surgeons at Bernie called his mate. So (laughs) this is just where the story just gets bizarre but amazing, like, I'm so thankful though. So there's this guy, the Dr. George, his name is, don't know anything else but that. He was from Victoria and he was on a romantic holiday in Tasmania with his wife in in Launceston. And his mate that was also a doctor at Bernie ended up calling him and just saying, we have a situation, you need to get here. So this guy drove from Launceston up to Burnie and he just walked in and the head guys at Burnie Hospital also came in and they had heaps of meetings and my dad talks about him like he's basically a goddess. He just walks in and he like took charge. He was just like, I got this. Like It was amazing but it come down to them saying to my parents, look, she has a 1% chance to get to the Alfred Hospital, like a trauma hospital, where they are capable of helping her or she passes away here where you guys are with her because they all doubted that I would make that flight because I was basically in a traumatic state where I shouldn't have actually survived getting to the hospital. Right. So that's a huge decision. What did? How did your parents take that conversation and what did they decide to do? They basically just said, get her there. So Dr. George, like, he was beside me the whole time. Um, He just, (laughs) he went through, my dad tells it, like, he just walks through the hospital. I don't know if he's ever been there, but he just walks through there. He was getting all these vials. He got this lab coat and he was just going through getting all these, like, vials and needles and just shoving them everywhere. And he's like, all right, I'm set. (laughs) Anyway, so they, from Hobart, the... RFDS ambulance they um had to open up Wynyard airport for me and yeah my family shit I never cry sorry it's totally fine 
Started fine. It was a pretty traumatic incident. I mean, we're talking about you were almost crushed and ripped in half. I think you're well worth being able to have a weep every once in a while. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's fine. I think because it's just like talking about my family, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, so they all said goodbye to me and my dad was following to watch me fly out of Winyard, not knowing, like, if it's the last time, but... It's kind of funny, <laughs> but, like, like the police pulled him up. So, yeah, that was unfortunate because he couldn't see me because, like, he was caught up with the police and – but, like, they heard about what happened, so. Did he get caught speeding? Is that what you Oh, mean? no, I think or- because oh, I flew out um the next night, like, so – the 5th of June, I think close to midnight, I flew out. So it was like yeah. really late. So they'd probably be like, yeah, who's this driving this time of night? Maybe. Like, we're going to do um, an alcohol test because, as my dad says, they walked up to the window with like asking for the license and his name and stuff. And they had a test there. And once he said um, his name and that he was at the hospital, they just like didn't. They're like, like asked how I was so yeah it just at that point it was around so yeah (laughs) Yeah. so they got you to the plane and your dad never got to say goodbye at the airport because he was talking to the police (laughs) (laughs) yeah he never got to see the plane yeah but Dr George like he said to my parents I'll call you when your baby girl's safe in those words which yeah is really nice of him so my, everyone went home, like I obviously showered and just laid in bed. I know that mum and my little brother just laid in bed and my dad just sat beside because where we live, the reception is best at windows. So my dad had his phone up on the windowsill so he wouldn't go out of reception and just waited for the phone call all night. There was an incident at the airport where, like, they wouldn't leave because I got flown to Essendon and then I was helicoptered to the Alfred and something must have happened. Like I must have just gave up a bit and Dr. George must have done whatever he could and it was fine. And then I got ran in, like they were just running me into the Alfred Hospital from the helicopter and I remember this story because, I don't know, just hearing that people actually cried when they seen me that I've never met. I think made me realise how severe it was. It, it like obviously I would be with the injuries. Like it, I would have been a mess, but yeah. So even entering Alfred, these nurses teared up, and basically from there it was just yeah, got to get stuff done. <laughs> so they whipped you into surgery, I presume, and just were trying to repair what had been badly damaged so I was in a coma and from there I was in surgeries that went for hours and hours like I don't know the extent of the hours but I'm pretty sure I don't know if it was 10 hours I was in there for or 15 but they like I had no pelvis like all my insides they were Bernie done a good job like they even Alfred was thankful for what Bernie done. I remember them saying that and, like, Bernie couldn't save me but they did good. Like, mm. yeah. Yeah. So from there, 
I was just in a coma. I was in massive surgery lengths and then between surgeries I obviously have to heal and calm down but I was not recognisable. My dad said like my head was so large because of all the drugs I'm on and this other doctor come in and my parents never forgot this but he said I took 12 years off his life <laughs> in a funny way though um, and I'm on enough drugs to put down two elephants so you can imagine how swollen my head was and how different I would have seemed and Obviously, I'm not getting, like, food or anything into my body. So, yeah, I was from there it was just that, surgeries, coma. And then um, they told my family, obviously, because I did hit my head, they would not know how I would wake up. So, obviously, there would be a disability physically there because my pelvis got crushed, but mentally they did not know how I was going to wake up or if I could even sit up at that point, yeah. Wow. So how long was it before you found yourself again and, and, and sort of said, well, here I am in hospital and I'm feeling a little bit more like me? Well, seven days after that, they did wake me up and my sister, like, obviously just woke up. I think the trauma was still running through my body a bit and... As soon as I woke up, I was ripping out every tube I could. Like, I was just in this scared position, didn't know where I was, but they tried to calmly tell me what was going on and I would try to get up and my sister said she had to put all her, like my eldest sister, she had to put all her strength into holding me down on that bed and she actually struggled. So I must have had some strength behind me. Yeah, and I was just screaming at her, like, in an angry way. So from waking up, to that, to being in ICU, being on all the drugs, I just felt it does cause an impact, I think, a lot. Like that's just what I won't forget is being in ICU because it was, I just seen it as torture because the drugs I was on, I was hallucinating. So every day like these nurses were putting needles into my neck and torturing me and to the extent of putting smokes between my toes and letting them burn my skin, like, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, hallucinations. <laughs> totally, totally on another planet, but. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. My family, they, they had to, the nurses and doctors would have to keep my curtain closed with a peg and a note saying, please keep this closed because all I would do is scream at them and be like, you're putting my body on my space, you're taking images of me. Like I was, it was hallucinations and they were all negative. They were not good. And then there was a lot of hallucinations to do with the accident. So I seen like my dad have an accident outside the hospital, although I didn't even know where I was or what hospital I was in. Um, my brother-in-law having a car accident through the ICU. So I think a lot of that trauma like it played on the hallucinations and yeah a lot of bullying so like the nurses and doctors just saying really horrible things to me and they were really great though that like although I seen they were evil they were actually so great and especially to my family like I remember them bring the like the old VCR TV in and they had Lion King and they put that on for me which in a sense now, you probably shouldn't because all I seen was 
Lion King characters abuse the, the hell out of me. So maybe in that environment don't do that again, but it was really nice of him. Just stuff like that. It really was two different universes, wasn't it? It was um, mm. you're lying there in a, in a Melbourne hospital with everybody doing everything they can to care for you and in your universe, you know, you're being tortured by yeah. these evil, strange things are happening around you and none of it makes any sense. It must be very, must have been really, really disconcerting for you. Definitely. Um, like I know the state I was in, like obviously I had an accident and I was there because of my injuries but the hallucinations made it that they weren't good people and what they were doing were horrible and I think that's what really hurt. What did the doctors say in terms of a prognosis? Like as you did, was there any point there where you were actually told or were your parents told at any point there, look, this is the extent of the damage and this is what the rehabilitation is going to be like and and this is what life moving forward could look like was there at any point they were able to determine that or was it just too severe they said to my parents that they said that I would basically never walk again so that was told and then but even to sitting up and having like my brain function the way it was before the accident they had no idea so they kind of just had to tell my parents like this worst case scenario and it's looking like this um and obviously at that point when I was hallucinating and screaming and saying all this stuff they still wouldn't have known until I was coming off out of ICU that's when it started like more therapy started and they were asking me questions and I had to remember stuff and that's kind of at that point with physically they had no idea physically (laughs) It was so hard to say, but from the injuries and all the surgeries, it was just lucky that hopefully I could sit up. Like, I don't think they really cared long-wise, like, am I going to walk again? I think because I just had that accident, I did die twice. um, And then that was traumatic enough and severe enough. So obviously they just want me alive. So step by step, like, they wouldn't know until they seen myself, like, sit up and then go into rehab and heal so I couldn't wait there for months like I just laid in a bed so months goes by how how long how long was it before you actually were able to to start that rehab process so I was in ICU and then I went to a different ward and I was still hallucinating so I must have still been on high medication they soon realized that I am the same girl that I was like my nan did say I've always been ditzy, which I have, because <laughs> bless nan. Um, <laughs> so brain injury-wise, I'm fine. I'm the same. Just, yeah. Um, Just the same old lovely dits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't grandmothers always get it right? <laughs> <laughs> and then I got to go to Burns Ward where I was allowed to sit up a bit and they would roll me over to change the sheets, which felt so good to the point I actually would accidentally spill water on the sheets so they could move me because it felt so amazing just to be rolled. <laughs> That's sad, but it was so good just to feel to be rolled when you're just laying there for so long. And then it got to the point where I think two and a half months after being at Alfred, they allowed me to go to Launceston. So I was still not um, able to wait there though I could go in a wheelchair 
just like not straight up though. So how did they transport you back to Tasmania? Of course, we were flying doctor service. <laughs> so yeah, that's where they came into our lives. Like I've never heard of Royal Flying Doctor Service. My dad, like I've never heard my family talk about them. And then from the first time I went in there, they just became a part of our lives. Like just seeing the word or hearing about Royal Flying Doctor Service, it just, just glows our hearts. And I suppose that's just what they do. Oh, that's really nice. So you, you ended up back in Tasmania and you're now in a, a sort of a wheelchair that you can almost sit up but not quite. What mm. happened once you got back to Tasmania from there? What was your rehab um, journey like from that point? From there, I was just in the children's ward at Launceston Hospital. So I basically just laid in the bed and watched ABC every day and just ate. There was physios coming, but obviously there is not heaps I can do. Uh, I think like I'm just still trying to heal my pelvis especially because I don't know what month it was, but I actually got an infection and I had to get all of it out because it was life-threatening. So I think that was because I went to Alfred to Launceston for two months and then I went back to Alfred. So I think it was in the third hospital stay, but second of Alfred, that's when that major surgery happened. Oh, so you had a couple of hiccups along the way. Yes. So you ended up having to go back to Melbourne again because of an infection. Basically, Alfred, like, they took charge and control of everything. So, like, they were the only right. ones to really touch my body. But I was allowed to go to Launceston because, obviously, it was close to home. And I got yeah. to that state where I didn't need surgery for a while. But once this infection happened, they took all the platinum metal, whatever was in my body, out. Wow. So you've been a bionic woman for a while there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I was. <laughs> okay. So, Alicia... It's now, so this was all back in 2010, right? Yes. Here we are 12 years on. How are you? I'm actually really great. <laughs> I know it sounds like I'm crying in my voice, but I'm fine. <laughs> I'm completely fine. As I'm sitting here talking to you, you can walk. You, you look healthy. You look like a, a beautiful, young, vivacious woman going about her life. You would never know just from me sitting and talking to you now, I'd never know that you'd gone through this outrageous, outrageous uh, accident and, and recovery. So do you have physical limitations now based on the accident that you had? Yes, I actually do. And it was only six months ago I had a hip replacement. So at the moment, I'm learning to walk again <laughs> from a hip replacement, so I'm using one crutch. But before the hip replacement, yeah, I was quite independent. I was working as a support worker like I still am. I was just volunteering, helping elderly and working. It was only four years ago when I found myself because from being in hospital to going home, to being in a wheelchair, to trying to be a teenager and be like everyone else, it destroyed me in a big way. I depended on medication a lot to get by um, mentally. Like I actually found out what, you know, depression, anxiety and PTSD felt like. Yeah. So from there, I basically just had to survive in the way I did and 
my insecurities just kind of took over. Yeah. Right. So I was just, you know, drinking like everyone else. I was, I wasn't going to physio. I wasn't actually like trying to help myself because I was so lost. But then years went by and I just, I don't know, something ticked inside of me, this anger. I somehow got my anger to help me in a way where I just started walking again because it didn't feel good enough. So I got so angry and I was sick of who I was and the life I was living. So I just started walking again. I started just to get my shit together and was like, stuff this. Like, So I ended up just surrounding myself with such good people. I got a good therapist, good doctors that actually care. I got off all medication that I was on, which was amazing because the medication I was on for 12 years and just to go off them like that, I was just in this mental state where I was so strong because I found myself and I got a career actually supporting people where like I once was like that and it just helped me get up every day. And then even on the bad days where I was like, you know, having a panic attack or just feeling not good enough for this world or just down, I just was like, yo, like, you got ripped in half my car. Like, <laughs> you got this. So just, like, that's weirdly my motivational to get up and just do <laughs> something. So there is a lot of pain and trauma, like, deep down. But my personality, I think, saved me from all of it because I've always just been this positive, bubbly person, like, my whole life. If I didn't have that, I think I would have allowed all the physical and mental pain to take control, but I didn't, thankfully. You're inspirational. You really are. You're inspirational. Some, <laughs> <laughs> Some days we all have good days and we all have bad ones, but honestly, you've been through um, hellfire and brimstone, as they say, and, and come out the other side. Uh, it's really impressive. If, if you were looking back at... Well, I guess a 15-year-old Alicia. Obviously, <laughs> I presume your advice to Alicia would be, you know, don't get behind the wheel of a car if you're not licensed and if you've had alcohol. Um, but what advice would you give for a teenager who's doing things that maybe they shouldn't and is just trying to somehow find themselves in the world? What has your journey um, led you to conclude or, or learn well, most importantly, you're not invincible. <laughs> Definitely not invincible. Just said everything is going to be okay. And like, no matter what put you in that position to do the stuff that you did, it will be okay. And there's always people there to help and support you. Yeah. Like, obviously it was a negative situation and it was self-inflicted. And I'm so lucky that I was the driver. I was the worst one and no one died and just and hearing stories these days of you know young ones getting behind the wheel and like their passengers die or they die and then it just makes me think like wow and I know it's hard like we say don't drink drive and we'll dares you I'll drive you just all that but when you're in that state of mind intoxicated you're not yourself because you're not thinking straight so just beforehand always have a plan I always have a plan I don't actually drink alcohol but when I did always have a plan <laughs> and basically yeah everything's gonna be okay this has been a brilliant interview I want to say thank you I really appreciate you 
coming forward and talking to me and I hope I haven't traumatised you in walking through that whole thing again. Oh, no, no, it's completely fine. I don't even know why I cry. I don't really cry. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Thank you very much, Alicia. That's fine. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02 7928 We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Coolen. Thanks again for listening. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.